The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So we are in our month of Christ-mindedness, and that is enough reason for us to be excited because it's such a powerful uh, it's such a powerful theme. We are in this resurrection season, and so we're filled with hope, we're filled with the newness of life, we're filled that everything that had to be shaken has has shaken and what remains is the resurrection power of God and that the Holy Spirit is coming now to us. We are waiting patiently, we are waiting faithfully, we are waiting diligently, and the Holy Spirit is gonna come and fill us once again. He's gonna come and pour out upon us the sons and daughters, the handmaidens and the old men and the young men, and he's gonna give us new visions, he's gonna give us new fire. And it's just such a powerful time for us as Christians to be looking into our callings. So I wanna wish you just power and hope in this month. And so that's why I'm excited about this theme because when we think about Christ-mindedness, it really gives us a double perspective. The first perspective we have, of course, as leaders is to keep our minds on Christ. And secondly, as leaders, to have the same mind that was in Christ. So it's this double, it's being focused on him, what he meant, what the implications of his coming to earth and dying on the cross for us, what those implications mean for our day-to-day -day lives. But then also we want to go deeper with the kind of mindset that he had to be able to fulfill this call. And so before Easter, before we uh, had come to Resurrection Sunday, we had spent the four weeks up until Resurrection Sunday at SML, looking at the passion story, trying to understand the story from the perspective of leadership. We learned a little bit that the cross of Christ has something to say about leadership. And I wanna just spend a few minutes talking about passion. And what's interesting is when we think about that word, especially in a just modern usage in English, we see that the meaning doesn't really give us what we think it does. And so whenever you hear the word passion these days, it's always used in a diluted form from its original meaning. And so today when we hear the word passion, we think about that strong emotional feeling. And usually it's a self-defined feeling. So if you go to a job interview, one of the questions might be, you know, tell us about your passion, what's your passion? Or if you are following wellness gurus, you know, they will urge you to follow your passion in order to have a meaningful life. And yet those uses of the word passion don't really give us the original meaning. They, they don't let us know that the Latin root of the word passion is actually the word passio. And passio means to suffer. So when we get excited about discovering our passion or knowing our passion or following our passion, we lose sight of the fact that the word passion actually means to suffer. This is why we speak about the passion of Christ. We're speaking about the suffering of the Messiah. And so the question becomes, if you're trying to know your passion, trying to follow your passion, try to, to discover your passion, the question becomes, can you identify if we understand now that passion means suffering, can you identify the 
the thing that you are called to suffer for. You're looking for your passion. What is your passion? Do you know what that thing is that you're called to suffer for? Another way of putting that is, do you have the strength to follow your suffering? If you're looking for your passion and you wanna follow your passions, do you have the strength to follow your suffering? And so, if we are going to be leaders who are Christ-minded, if we are going to be leaders who have this mind in us in order to follow Jesus, in order to follow this God who suffered, we're gonna need this mindset. The mindset that gets captured for us in Philippians chapter two, verse five. We're coming to the point now in the church where we should be able to uh, recite these verses by heart because they we hear them so often preached just yesterday by the pastor, but they're so meaningful to us when there are some key scriptures that we should never let go of. And this Philippians chapter two, verse five is one of them. The apostle Paul writes to his friends in Philippi, and he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, that is death on the cross, hallelujah. And so we wanna understand this mindset, this mind that was in Christ, what Paul is describing. We need to understand these key points, namely that following Jesus needs the mindset of suffering, the mindset of suffering. Number two, that following Jesus needs the mindset of service. That number three, following Jesus needs the mindset of humility. That number four, following Jesus needs the mindset of obedience. And number five, that following Jesus needs the mindset of dying to self. So a five-fold mindset. Five, we know it's always the number that signifies grace. And so if we were saved by grace, this mindset of grace includes these five aspects, suffering, service, humility, obedience, and dying to self. And so as we get on in this month of Christ-mindedness, trying to understand from a leadership perspective what that means, we're going to look at all of these aspects. And so there's no better place to start than with the book of Acts, because of course we did the gospel up until Resurrection Sunday. You'll recall a few weeks ago, we were on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his companion. And we said that that passage was really, it's, it's in Luke's gospel is really the ending of the story of the gospels, the ending of the story of Jesus's passion, and it represents the inflection point, the point at which Jesus has crucified. He begins now to appear to his disciples and he gives them a new revelation about what their assignment is. And they run back to meet the others in Jerusalem and say, yes, we now have this hope that we are able to go on with our assignments. We were heartbroken, but now we have a better understanding because we've been able to receive this insight from the mind of God. And so that takes us naturally into the book of Acts. And that's where we are gonna find ourselves uh, this evening. Okay. So the question is, just still on that road to Emmaus, not only um, Cleopas and his companion, but the other disciples, the 12, the 11 now, um, and the other disciples, the, the bigger crowd of followers of Jesus. When they had lost him bodily, when Jesus had been crucified and when they found the tomb empty, he was no longer with them, but they needed to maintain his mindset. And so this is actually one of the keys that we need as followers of Jesus to be able to fulfill our kingdom assignments. How do you keep Jesus's mind when you don't have his person with you at all time? You don't have him bodily. 
And so we know that, of course, this is the reason why when Jesus began to appear to his disciples in those 40 days when he was still on the earth, he breathed on them. He was showing them that he was giving them his spirit. He was giving them the Holy Spirit, which would eventually come upon them at Pentecost, but not having him bodily, but having him in spirit was the way that they would be able to maintain his thoughts, his mindset, his way of thinking. And so this is really what the book of Acts is for. We've, we've mentioned it a few times when we've looked at it at SML, that the book of Acts really is the book where the star of the show is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up at the beginning and, at, and in everything, all of those supernatural acts, all of those transformations that take place in the people to be able to establish the early church they were all driven, they were all supervised, they were all facilitated, animated through the Holy Spirit. And so this book of Acts really is the introduction of the mindset of Christ in his disciples. And so tonight I want us to look at a man who uh, appears in the book of Acts. He's a man who was able to develop this mindset, develop this mind of Christ, without ever having met him bodily. All of the other disciples had spent time with Jesus in those three years of his earthly ministry, except for Paul. And yet it's amazing to us that Paul is the author of at least one third of the New Testament, that Paul is the one who gives us these deep revelations and these mysteries of God. Paul is the one who ascended to the third heaven. So he gets all of this download of the mindset of God without ever having been with Jesus bodily. And so that's helpful for us. And we also know that we have so much to learn from Paul as a leader. And so tonight I want us to start by looking at the book of Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read from the verses 3 to 9 and then I'm going to jump to the verses 15 to 22. If you have your Bible you can turn there with me but if it sounds familiar to you it's because this is um, where Saul gets his conversion. We are on the road to Damascus with Saul. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And trembling and astonished, and, and he trembling, excuse me, and he, Paul, trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Verse 15, but the Lord said unto him, speaking to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, that is Jesus, hath appeared unto thee in the way thou camest and hast sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus, he stayed. And straight away he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came here for that intent 
that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us once more. Lord, we thank you so much for this season of resurrection power. We thank you for the hope that you are releasing upon our lives. We thank you for the newness of life, for the strength, Lord, that you are giving unto us. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you that you are breath upon us. We thank you that you are wind behind us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would pour out yourself upon us afresh, that we would be lit by your fire, Lord, that we would do new things in this season. I thank you, Lord, for the School of Ministry and Leadership. I thank you, Lord, for everyone who was gathered here, believing that you have something to say to them tonight. Father, I ask that you would bless the sharing of this message, that you would touch this earthen vessel, Lord, to pour out the treasure herein. And I ask you, Lord, that you would anoint me to share this message the way that I've received it. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed and all the saints shall say, amen, hallelujah. So we've got this text that Saul has now been converted. We're calling him Paul. And we see a few things in his conversion. We see that when he was Saul, when he was known uh, by that name, by his Hebrew name, because he was spending a lot of time in Judaism, he was really a fire-breathing Pharisee. And how does he convert from this Pharisee of the Pharisees to becoming what we know as the 13th apostle, this church planter extraordinaire? And so we see this, that other than being arrested by the risen Christ in his glory on that road to Damascus, what happens to Paul as a leader is that he is now imparted with this mind that was in Christ, those five points that we raised earlier about suffering, service, humility, obedience, and dying to self. And so we wanna understand a little bit about this conversion and how Paul begins this transformation. This text is just the seed, it's just the beginning of Paul's greatness. And so let's look at a few points. The first point, we notice from Paul's speech, when the light of Christ comes around him and when he hears the voice from heaven that calls him by his name and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul asks a question. He says, who are you, Lord? And so the first point that we want to make is, is that in order to have this mind that was in Christ, the first thing is that you really have to desire to know God, or you have to desire to really know God. Why do I say this? I say it because Paul's question was, Lord, who are you? In other words, Lord, tell me who you are. Up until that point, we could have argued, and Paul himself would have said that he knew who God was. Paul had been trained by one of the greatest Pharisees living in Jerusalem at that time, by Gamaliel. Paul knew his Old Testament. He knew the law and he knew the prophets. Paul had the authority by the state to go out and round up those who were perceived to be blaspheming against God. So no one could have stood before Paul and said that he didn't know who God was. And yet his first question, his first interaction in this conversation that he has with the risen Christ. He says, Lord, who are you? He's saying, I thought I knew who you were. All of my actions, all of my training, how I dress, how I think, how I act, all of that has been underpinned by who I thought you were. I had a particular theology about you and that framed everything that I did. And now I find myself standing in this great light, hearing this voice that knows my name. And my first question is, Lord, who are you? So Paul had a desire to really know God, to, to go beyond the desire that he had, or to go beyond the knowledge, I should say, to go beyond the knowledge that he had before that. 
it begins to dawn on Paul that who he thought God was all these years is in fact not who God is. It's not the totality of who God is. And so this, this becomes relevant to you in your leadership because your experience to date of God is not the totality of who he is. And so in order to fulfill your leadership assignment, you need to have a further personal revelation of who he is. And it starts with this question, Lord, who are you? What's interesting about this exchange, I think, is, is that God makes it clear that he knew exactly who Paul was. He calls him by his name, he calls him twice, and he tells him what he's been up to. He says, you know, Paul, you're, you're doing yourself injury, you're striving and you're striving and you're kicking against the pricks and you just can't keep doing that. So I'm about to give you rest, even though you're gonna suffer for my name. So God knew who Paul was. And the same is true for you, that God knows who you are. He knows exactly where you're coming from. He knows what you've been through. He sees you right now, what you're going through. He knows who you are. He knows if you're striving. He knows if you're being lazy. He knows if you're dodging him a little bit. But in order to fulfill your real assignment, not the assignment that you think, not maybe the wrong assignment or pieces of your assignment, your total assignment, you need a personal revelation of who God is and what he wants you to do. And so this is the point about service, those five points that we raised earlier, about the mindset of Christ, that it will be surprising to you that the assignment you think you have from God is not the assignment that you think it is. That the assignment you think you have is not the assignment that you think. The assignment that you're currently on is not the totality of what God really wants you to do. You might think you know Jesus, but he has come to tell you that actually there's something about him that you don't know. There's something about your assignment that you don't yet know. And he's calling you for you to ask him who he is so that he can reveal to you the full scope of your service. Who are you, Lord? The second point that we want to make is, is that you won't be given all the details of this assignment in advance. And so when we see that Paul has fallen down in blindness and that the stewards who he's with have to take him by the hand and carry him into Damascus, he's now blind, he's helpless, and he's been waylaid, if you will, on his assignment. So whatever timing or schedule he thought that he was going to keep, all of that has been put by the side, he can't see. And so he's led by the hand into Damascus. And after he asks the Lord, who are you? And the Lord tells him that, well, I'm Jesus and you've been persecuting me. Part of Paul's conversion is actually not to make excuses or not to tell a long story. He simply yields and he says, well, Lord, what must I do? If you really are who you say you are, then what do I have to do? I can't see anything now. Everything that I thought that was so clear before, all I'm in right now is darkness. I've lost my senses. What do I do? And what's interesting is, is that the Lord says to him, well, get up and go to the city. And there you will be told what to do. And this is a really important point. Many of us struggle with this. I struggle with this, that we think, if I'm really called, if I really know what I'm supposed to be doing, then I will know what to do. <laughs> I will have all the details that God would have sent me a manual via the post with all of the chapters point by point. First do this, then do that, then do that, and everything will work out. But that's not how he does it. He says, get up, go, and there you'll be told what to do. And what we see is that God actually never leads any of his leaders this way, where he gives them all the information up front. He gives them the, the blow by blow account of how this assignment is gonna go down. He didn't lead Moses that way. He didn't lead Abraham that way. He didn't lead David that way, he didn't lead Joshua that way. Even Jesus had to pray to know what the father was doing. And so God does not lead his leaders that way. What Jesus says to us is he says, follow me, 
and I will make you. But he's really short on these details, right? He doesn't say, well, I'm going to make you this or I'm going to I'm going to make you like this and then that. He just says, follow me and I will make you trust me in the making process. He tells Moses to stretch forth his rod. He tells Joshua to step into the Jordan. He tells David at Ziglag that, yes, pursue and you shall surely recover all. But he doesn't give the details. And so this is why the Bible tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. And so I want this point number two, this point that you won't be given all the details in advance. I want it to be an encouragement to you that just because you don't have the details doesn't mean that you are not called. Just because you don't know everything of how this is going to work out doesn't mean that, that you're not in God's will or that you're not in the assignment. You are in the assignment. It's just that he's telling you to arise and go, and there you will be told what to do. The word of the Lord promises us that them who wait upon the Lord, them that hope in the Lord shall not be ashamed, but them who hope on the Lord will rise up with eagles' wings. And so this is the point about humility. Can you follow God when you don't know what to do? Can you follow God when you don't know how to do it? Because by definition, leadership is all about being out front. It's all about having the plan. It's all about casting the vision and giving strategy and delegating to others, telling them what to do. So surely if you are going to be able to lead, then you need to have some advanced information. But what God is saying to us is that when you are a leader in him, you won't have all the information. What you need is the faith. What you need is the humility to rely on God. So go and you will be told what to do. Hallelujah. The third point, and this is a really important one, given the season that we're in, is that you must die three days. You must die three days. So this is the point about dying to self. We have that verse in John's gospel, John chapter 12, verse 24, where Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So you have to die to self in order to become fruitful. And we know just coming out of the resurrection Sunday that Jesus went down into Hades for three days. What we celebrate is the fact that he went down there. He made a spectacle of the powers. He took the keys of death and the grave and he rose up victorious. That's what we celebrate. That's what Easter is. And yet in his earthly ministry, when he was speaking to the Pharisees and when the Pharisees were asking him for a sign, Jesus explained this when they wanted to know if he really was the Messiah. Jesus's response in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, Jesus says, for as Jonah was three days and nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so what's interesting about that imagery when we think about Jonah, and I have to say it's quite interesting, we don't talk a lot about Jonah, and we should talk a whole lot more about him. You know, we sense the fact that he's not the best example because he didn't do what God wanted him, and his story is very short and it ends very abruptly. And so we don't like to associate ourselves with Jonah too much. But in fact, Jonah as a prophet has so much to tell us. And so when we look at this, this imagery that Jesus himself quotes. Jesus quotes Jonah staying in the belly of the fish for three nights and three days as a typology of he, Christ himself, being in the belly of the earth, going down into Hades for those three nights and three days before he rises victorious. When we think about Jonah in the belly of the whale, we often think that he was just well, I don't know what we think. And I think maybe this comes from uh, a Disney movie from Pinocchio. I, I Please correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a scene there where Pinocchio's in the belly of the fish, right? Anyway, it's the scene where he's very much alive. He's camping, or I think it's the grandfather. He's camping out in the belly of the whale. You know, he's got a fire going, he's sitting down, he's walking up and down. My point is when we think about Jonah in the belly of the whale, we think of him alive. We think of him moving around in the belly, just going up and down, waiting to, 
for something to happen because he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. But in fact, there are Bible scholars who point out that when you actually study Jonah's prayer, we're going to look at it in a moment, you see that Jonah was actually praying from the realm of the dead, that Jonah was praying from Sheol. And so there are scholars who believe that actually Jonah died, that when they threw him off the side of the boat, that Jonah actually drowned. And when he drowns, he begins to pray from Sheol and he's revived. And that it's not that he was just hanging out in the belly of the whale for three days, but that he died at the bottom of the sea and God sends this fish to scoop him up and spit him back out in, in, onto dry land because of the prayer that he has prayed. And it is in that resurrection, so to speak, that Jesus makes this uh, analogy that he will also die and be, and, and, and be spat out from the realm of the dead, so to speak. So let's look at Jonah's story. I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 1. And um, I'm going to read a little bit extendedly down to chapter 3. It sounds long, but Jonah's book is short. But I want us to, to capture this. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by the reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Yet I will look again towards thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Amen. So that's why there's this ambiguity in the text. Was Jonah alive? Was Jonah dead? Because the word in verse in chapter two says, then Jonah prayed. But scholars think that it's not a consecutive then sort of the way you have two Genesis accounts of creation. They're not consecutive. They are parallel, as it were. They explain different things. But my point in reading this to us is that when Jonah prays this prayer, and you see how beautiful the prayer is, that this prayer, we can, we can hear echoes of it in David's psalm, Psalm 42, when he speaks about deep calleth unto deep, how all of your billows and waves roared over me, those rushing waterfalls. He's borrowing from Jonah. But Jonah prays this prayer after having sunk to the bottom of the sea, after realizing that his life is, 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 is going from him. He repents and he cries out to God and then he's revived. And when he's revived, God says to Jonah the same thing that he said to Paul, arise, go to the city and you'll be told what to do. And what's amazing is that after this three days of dying, after this dying, remember Jonah's story, God sent him to preach and he didn't want to go. He runs away from his assignment. It's after he repents, after he's been in darkness for three 
days and three nights. When he comes back, he's died to self, that he's able to arise and go to the city and fulfill what he's told by God to do. And so this is where we see Paul, that Paul was also in this darkness for three days. We can say that Paul was in the belly of the whale without sight for these days. In those days, not knowing what to do, dying to his self-conception of who he was, who he had thought he was all of these years, his tradition, his culture, his education, his own successes. And so when the wheat, when the, when, when the kernel falls and dies, we know that what happens biologically is that the outer coat actually uh, crumbles. The outer coat, we could refer to it as the flesh. The outer coat of the kernel is what dies. And that's the same thing that has to happen to us when we go through this three-day dying process. That it's the flesh that has to die so that the potential, whatever is hidden in the seed, can now germinate, can now break out of that dying flesh. That the thing that is hidden in the seed, that's the tree and that's the fruit, it can now begin to grow unless that kernel falls into the ground and unless the flesh, the coat of the kernel dies away, that tree will never grow. And if there's no tree, there will be no fruit. So when Paul finally regains his sight, the Bible tells us that something like scales fall from his eyes. And so we can see that the scales that fell physically from his eyes was a sign of the flesh falling away from his vision. This is why we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible speaks about this, about how the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of God. And this is what happens, that once Paul has seen the glory of God, once Paul has seen the light of the gospel because he's blinded by this light that surrounds him and he says who are you lord and he says i am jesus who you are persecuting so paul is literally in this light he believes the light of the gospel the scales of his eyes fall away what the god of this age used to blind his mind falls away when we continue reading verse 5 it says for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so as Paul writes this letter to his friends at Corinth, so, so many years later in his ministry, we can imagine that He's writing this letter to the situation that they were facing there, but really reminiscing of this moment that he had this encounter with the glory of the risen Jesus, that he was blinded by the light, that he believed the light of the gospel and the, the blindness, the scales from his eyes, the flesh fell away. His self-deception fell away. He stopped preaching himself. He stopped preaching the God of traditions. He began to preach this Christ crucified. He was now willing to stand in the fullness of this glory, this image and likeness. And so the question is, are you, after going through the three days of dying, after being in the darkness, and that's not a, a, a temporal three days, it's a, it's a spiritual three days. Once you've been in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, once you have died to self and you have risen, with this flesh fallen away, are you ready to preach Christ crucified? So this point about having the mindset of Christ, being able to die to self, self-conception, is necessary for the leader in Christ. Let's look at the fourth point. You will suffer for his name. This is what God tells Ananias. He doesn't tell it to Paul. We study the text carefully. He tells it to Ananias that go and lay hands on this man because he's going to suffer greatly for my name's sake. 
And so if we are going to have this mindset that was in Christ, we have to know that we are going to suffer for the name. And so this clearly is the point about suffering. When we look at John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, Jesus speaking to his disciples actually just before he's about to leave. This is part of his valedictory address to them at the, at the Last Supper. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so Jesus is very clear about this, that in order to have the mind that was in him, you have to be willing to suffer for the name. So suffering goes with the assignment. That to understand that as a follower of Jesus, fulfilling your assignment, you will suffer rejection, you will suffer persecution, you'll probably suffer some, some other things as well, loneliness, opposition, um, moments of, 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 of little faith, mockery, frustration. And what's interesting about the follower, the one who follows Jesus closely, is that it's easy for us to accept these persecutions when they come from far. But when they come from those near us, it's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But that's why we have to remember Jesus. We have to remember that his mother and brothers called him insane when he was in the house, when he was in the houses teaching and, and healing people. They came to visit and they came to take him home, actually. You'll remember, they said, he's crazy. Tell him to come out here. His mother's out here and his brothers. We know that he, he told us that a man's enemies will always be in his household. We saw Jesus struggling with the people in his hometown, with his own kin. They tried to throw him off the brow of the cliff when he started preaching messages that they didn't like. At the cross, Jesus's closest friends left him. And so we will suffer all of these things just as he did because we are following in his way. And the way of Jesus is marked with all of these signs. And so when you begin to experience these, just feel the assurance that you are following closely to him. And these are the signs of being in the way. So you will suffer for his name. That's the fourth point about having this mind. And then the fifth point is that you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. This goes without saying. This goes without saying. And so we see this precisely at the beginning of Paul's conversion, that what Ananias is sent to do, he's sent to assure him, he's sent to lay his hands on him, but it's for the purpose of Paul receiving the Holy Spirit. That it's a reminder to us that this transfer of leadership, that Jesus's transfer from when he's leading his disciples bodily, he's with them physically, to when he's leading them spiritually, this difference is animated by this Holy Spirit, which is why Jesus breathes on his disciples at the very beginning. The disciples have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them at Pentecost. And before Paul sets out on this new assignment that he's received, he also must receive the Holy Spirit. You and I also, when we step out on this assignment that God is giving us, we have to receive the Holy Spirit in a fresh way, receive the Holy Spirit for the fulfillment of the assignment. It's the only way that we can fulfill these assignments by the divine enablement of the Holy Spirit. And we see this difference in the character and in the courage of the disciples pre-crucifixion and post-crucifixion. Before the crucifixion, they were men who could not stand with Jesus. After they received the Holy Spirit, the, the, the elders and the scribes testify of these men that, well, these men aren't trained, they're not very eloquent, we know they've not been to school, but we do know that they were with Jesus. Look at the way that they are moving, the power and the demonstration of the Spirit. So that's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes to the fulfillment of the assignment. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Point number six, which is really interesting uh, when we, we look at, at Paul's conversion, that it was so instantaneous, it says that he after he regained his sight, he ate a little bit, and then he immediately began to preach Jesus. And so point number six is that you must immediately preach Christ. When we look at the Bible, we see that there are so many examples of when God suddenly does something. You know, you can just pick your favorite where immediately the boat was at the other side of the lake or then suddenly God did whatever. And so the point is, is that we know, of course, that we serve this God who lives outside of time. And so it means that for him, it is always now. It is always present. And he wants to see his children moving now. You recall the parable of the two sons. The father asked one of them, son, go out and work the field. And that son said, sure, dad, I'll do it. But he never went. And then you had the other son who said, no, dad, I won't go. But then he eventually did. And, we, and Jesus asked the Pharisees, who of these two did the will of the father? The point is, is that Delayed obedience in the eyes of a God who lives in the now is disobedience because you're not doing what he has asked you to do now. So once your eyes have been opened, once the scales, the flesh have fallen away and you know what you're to do, you don't have the details of it because God is saying, go to the city and you'll be told what to do, but you've regained your sight and you have this new clear vision of who God is and what he's asking you to do. And when you get that revelation, then you have to immediately begin to move in this new vision. You have to preach Christ crucified right away. We remember when we were on the road to uh, Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend, the moment their eyes were opened to Jesus, it doesn't say that they slept over in the hotel and then the next morning they went back to Jerusalem. No, they immediately ran back back to the city to tell the others of what they had seen and experienced. And so this point is really about obedience. It's really about getting the revelation, having your eyes, the eyes of your understanding opened and immediately moving in that understanding, obeying immediately. So that's the sixth point. I think I've got two more points. Point number seven is that when you begin to move now in this revelation of this assignment that you've been given, you will have people bringing up your past. And we see now that with the, this point and the next point that I'm going to make is we see that once Paul has decided, he's taken the decision that he used to have one understanding of who God was and what his assignment was as a lover of God. Because remember, Paul, when he was called Saul, Never, no one would have said that he didn't love God. By just observing him, you would have said this guy was, um, this guy was a real, well, <laughs> this guy was devout is what you would say. And then he has this encounter on the road to Damascus, which totally appends everything that he's ever understood. But he now gets his true assignment and he begins to move in it immediately. Once he starts doing that, and once you start doing that as a leader with the mindset of Christ, you will have people bringing up your past. And this is what we see both in Paul, but also in Jesus. So when we look at Acts chapter 9, verse 21, when it says that Paul immediately began to preach in the synagogues, it says at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? And doesn't that sound so similar to what we hear in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, when Jesus, it says, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't that the carpenter's son? So we see these two texts that, that echo one another. And the point is that when you change, when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, when the scales have fallen from your eyes, you've been in the belly of the whale for three nights and three days, and you wake up, you are ready to move in this revelation of this understanding now of your assignment. People will bring up your past and they'll say, wasn't she the one who, 
Yes, they will say that, but that should not stop you from fulfilling what Jesus spoke to you when he surrounded you with his glory, when he said, up, go to the city and I'll tell you what to do. So people will bring up your past. You, you just need to be aware of that and be prepared for that and expect it. Your old reputation will try to kill your assignment. And so in, in those moments, you need to just escape, just get on with your assignment. It's not the time to stand and fight. We remember Gideon, that when Gideon was given his assignment, he dismantled his father's altar by night. Some like to use that to say that Gideon was afraid, but it wasn't Gideon's time to pick a fight with those people. It was Gideon's time to dismantle the altar so that he could get on with the assignment. And that's what you have to do when people begin to raise your past and your reputation and what you used to be. Just keep moving in the assignment. And then point eight, we're speaking about having the mind of Christ. Once you get this, once you have this mindset, and this is the last point, you'll grow in favor. We see that the last point of the scripture that we read tonight in Acts chapter nine, verse 22, it tells us that Paul increased the more in strength that Paul increased the more in strength. As he was in the synagogues and preaching Christ, it says that he increased the more in strength. And that sounds very familiar to what we read about the child Jesus in Luke chapter one, verse 40, where it says the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit. And just a few verses later in Luke chapter two, verse 52, it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So once you have the mindset of Christ, you grow, you increase in strength, you grow in favor, you wax in spirit, you grow in wisdom. And that favor is not just before men, but it's also before God. And even before the child Jesus, we see this language speaking of the prophet Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, it's almost identical to what we see in Luke. The Bible says, and the child Samuel grew on and was in favor, both with the Lord and also with men. So when you have this mindset, the same mind that was in Christ, with these five points, suffering, service, humility, obedience, and I've forgotten what the last one is, dying to self, then you'll grow in favor before men and before the Lord. Amen. So as we recap and I'm closing, tonight we were looking at the beginnings of the Apostle Paul about his conversion that took place on the road to Damascus. This was a moment that reoriented his passion. We started this evening defining the word passion, having just come through the resurrection story we speak about the passion of Christ and we use that language, the, the original Latin root for passion, which is passio, to suffer. But in our modern English, we lose the meaning of that because we speak about passions as being just this strong emotional feeling that's usually self-defined. So you'll ask yourself, well, what's my passion? Or I need to find my passion. I need to discover my passion. I need to follow my passion. And yet, if you're going to do that, you need to understand that what you're saying is, I need to identify the thing that I'm going to suffer for because Christ's passion was his suffering. And that's why the story of the crucifixion is really this manifestation of how Christ suffers for humanity. What we see on the road to Damascus is that in Paul's conversion, he has a reorientation of his passions the whole story starts because he is so offended by this group of nonconformists that he asks for authority and for letters that will allow him to travel, to go and arrest them. Whether they're men, whether they're women, he doesn't care. He's bringing them back to face the justice of the Judaic system. They're gonna be persecuted, they're gonna be martyred. And that was his passion. He wanted to wipe out this so-called way. And then he has this encounter, this encounter 
with the glory of the risen Christ. And when Paul meets him, Paul is already a leader. Paul is already a man of strong passion, strong emotions, but he didn't have the right passio. He didn't have the right suffering. He didn't have the right identification of what his assignment was in this God who he thought he was following and thought he was serving, but needed a reorientation. And so that reorientation that Paul gets is the receipts of the mind that was in Christ, that Paul's mindset begins to now shift. It's going to shift towards suffering. It's going to shift towards service. We see the suffering because the Lord tells Ananias that this man is going to suffer for my name's sake. We see the service because Paul immediately when he is baptized with the Holy Spirit, he begins to preach, he begins to now serve. He stayed with the disciples. He learned what this way was and he began to immediately serve in it. Humility, we see that Paul waits in the darkness, not knowing what to do, not knowing how long he has to be there, just waiting in humility for the next instruction of the Lord. We see Paul in obedience that the Lord tells him, get up and go and you will there be told what to do. So we see the linkage between humility and obedience. And that when he is given what to do, when he is given the Holy Spirit, he's given his sight back, his old self-conceptions, the flesh have fallen away, he can see clearly, immediately he now begins and he obeys the Lord by now preaching Christ. He's now sharing the gospel, he's now evangelizing. And then, of course, the fifth point, dying to self. Paul dies, the old Paul, the Pharisee. And of course, it's not um, the three days of dying is just the beginning of the dying process. It's the announcing of this process. But of course, we're going to see Paul continue to die to himself. And that's why in one of his letters, I think it's to maybe Timothy um, or maybe to Titus or maybe to the Thessalonians. I don't know what this letter is, but he speaks about this where he says, you know, uh, a, a wretch like me, like I'm the worst, I'm the worst of sinners. This is, it's, it's to Timothy. When he's at the end of his life, he's at the end of his ministry. He's waiting for death because he knows he's been arrested and he knows that they are going to uh, kill him. At that point, after he has poured himself out for the ministry, he says, you know, after he's been to the third heaven, after he's pled for God to take out the thorn and God says, no, he says, a sinner like me, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the chief of sinners. So to have such a confession after everything that Paul has been through, it lets us know that he continued to die to self even after those initial three days and three nights. And this is what made Paul such an extraordinary leader, having this mind set this mind that was in Christ on these five points, service, suffering, humility, obedience, and dying to self. Paul is able to go and essentially plant the, the early church, even though he wasn't always well liked, even though he wasn't always well understood, even though people didn't always stay with him or stand by him. We have story after story of how he was opposed. We have story after story of how he was betrayed. We have story after story about his suffering and, and he lists it of all the things, the whippings and the hunger and the nakedness and the betrayal and the frustration of ministry. He makes mistakes. He's not always happy. But the point is, is that through it all, from Romans to Corinthians to Colossians to Ephesians, through all of the epistles, he gives himself to the mind of God, to have this mindset that was in Christ so that he may be used mightily. Hallelujah to that. And so I pray for you and I pray for myself, I pray for us all, that we would have this mind that was in Christ. And Father, as we come to the end of this time in your presence, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you had this mind of humility and obedience that you loved us so much, Lord, that you put on flesh and you made yourself small in order to serve us. And Lord, even as you have commissioned us to go out and do likewise, to produce fruit so that we would show that we are your disciples. Lord, we ask you that you would help us, 
have the same mindset that was in you. Lord, we confess all the times that we've not had this mindset, that we've not said no to the flesh, that we've not said no to the world. Forgive us for the times when we have run from the assignment. Forgive us for the times when we have delayed obedience. Forgive us for the times when we have been puffed up and prideful, when we've been faithless. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. In the season of resurrection, we lean on your hope. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us with a new mind, you would fill us with a new heart, and you would fill us with courage and confidence to believe that we indeed can fulfill what you have called us to. Lord, we thank you for this promise. And we ask you, Lord, that let everything that we do never be for us, but may it be alone for your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. And all the saints shall say, Amen. Hallelujah.